You're listening to The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi everyone, Paul here, and just a quick message from me to let you know that if you are looking to improve the performance of your team, no matter whether it is a work, sporting, or community one, then we've developed some tools to help. On the website, you will find our Thriving Teams Diagnostic, which uses insights from the more than 200 great coaches we have interviewed to challenge you with a series of questions to help you understand how your team is performing. It's free and only takes a few minutes to complete. If you'd like to know more, you can check out our website, thegreatcoachespodcast.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi everyone, Paul here. We are taking a short break over the holiday season and so we're using the opportunity to revisit some of our favorite interviews. This week's is from Eddie Jones. Eddie talks so deeply about finding the beautiful balance between conflict and cohesion, training intensity, and what great coaches have in common. It was a highlight to interview him, and I hope you enjoyed as much as we did. Welcome to the Great Coaches Podcast. To me, being perfect is not about that scoreboard out there. This is a chance of a lifetime. When you can understand the person, you can then work towards a common goal. We are all on the same team. Now you roll and do it to the best of your ability. Focus on the fundamentals. We've gone over time and time again. Your defense has got to be better. We've no doubt tonight. Great moments are born from great opportunity. My name is Paul Barnett and you are listening to The Great Coaches Podcast, where we interview great sporting coaches to try and find ideas to help all of us lead our teams better. Our great coach on this show is Eddie Jones. Eddie is a rugby union coach and former player. He coached Australia from 2001 to 2005, winning the Bledisloe Cup in 2001 and 2002. The team also reached the 2003 Rugby World Cup final, losing in extra time to England. He was an assistant coach for South Africa when they won the 2007 Rugby World Cup and from 2012 to 2015 he coached Japan, leading them to their upset win over South Africa in 2015. In 2015, Eddie was appointed as head coach for England. They went on to win the Six Nations in 2016 and 2017, and then in the 2019 Rugby World Cup, they defeated defending champions New Zealand in the semi-final before losing the final to South Africa. In 2017, he was awarded World Rugby Coach of the Year. 
Eddie is an elite coach of the highest level, articulate and philosophical. He talks simply and with great depth about the challenges of building cohesion within a team. He talks about choosing a captain who complements you as a coach, the importance of constantly working on your observational skills so you can see where conflict is within the team, and how training at 100% intensity and then stopping when the team falls below that for a full minute can lead to better performance. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. The Great Coaches Podcast. Eddie Jones, hello and welcome to the podcast. All right, Paul. Whereabouts in the world are you today and what have you been up to? Uh, well, I'm in Bagshot, Surrey at our training centre, the England Training Centre, very posh area of, uh, of uh, England. Um, and today, been doing uh, a few Zoom meetings in the morning, um, as we all do. And this afternoon, just preparing. We're, we're about to start some camps with the players in the next three or four weeks. So the coaches are all busily preparing uh, what we need to do now. Very glad to get a little bit of your time then before things ramp up. And um, full disclosure, I guess, at the start of the podcast, you do work for Suntory and I am with Asahi, so we won't be talking about beer at all in this discussion. No quality beer discussion, mate. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe at the end when we're off camera. Eddie, I wanted to start by just going back a little bit in time because, you know, preparing for this interview, I get to see some of the names that you've had exposure to Jake White, Bob Dwyer, Alex Ferguson, Warren Gatlin. You talk about Pep Guardiola, and then this is just the tip of the iceberg. So I guess the first question is, what is it that you think that great coaches do differently than the others? Uh, well, I think they're very clear on what they want. Um, so they, they see the game. Um, they've got an image of the game, and they know what is successful in the game. I think they're also very good at giving players what they need, um, which is, a, is is probably the most, I think, the highest sophisticated skill of a coach, um, understanding what your players need from a group point of view and from an individual point of view. And I think the last thing is they've got a, generally got an insatiable desire to be better. Um, and whether that's through winning or through um, building better things, um, they all want to. They all want to find out a better way to do it. You know, I was preparing for this, and I kept coming back time, time again to this idea of of you being uncomfortable and always wanting to learn more. And I was watching a webinar back in April. Um, where you were talking to other rugby coaches and you were saying, you know, every three to six months you sit down, you review your professional development plan and you look at areas that you want to focus on for your improvement. If we were to dust that off and get it out now, I'm, I'm interested to know what would be on the top of the list. Yeah. Because of the circumstance, because we had basically uh, six months to reflect um, there were three it's always generally three key areas because uh, like most people, I can't remember more than three. Um, they haven't got the capacity to do any more than three. Um, so the three have been, uh, one, been really looking at the game of rugby um, and seeing how we can take our English game, which is a very defence set-piece game, uh, how we can add to that game. We don't want to take away from what we're good at. Um, 
And then the second part has been about coaching cohesion. I think it's it's one of the interesting things I have has happened through Corona. I think that um, that coaching staffs are probably going to get smaller. You know, there's a big story in the the Australian papers today about how the AFL are going to have to reduce their assistant coaches. Um, so the ability to get a really cohesive coaching staff, because you think about staffs, you know, when I first started coaching, I had a staff of about eight. I, I could do one-on-one reviews with them every month. You know, I knew the staff, knew their jobs. Now I'm looking after a staff of 25 permanent staff, and then you've got a host of consultants outside of that. And, and that's the way it's grown. Um, so the ability to to manage that group and get cohesion in that group is 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 vital and I've just had a new coaching staff uh, for the Six Nations and we only had three days prepare so I've been really working on how we can get cohesive and the last thing's been a bit of a uh, I wouldn't say experiment but probably not directly associated with what I do but something that interests me a lot is how you can improve recruitment which for us is selection um, so I've been looking at a number of different sports, baseball football, cricket about what what sort of data, what sort of other measurements are they using to get their selection right Did you find anything that was interesting that caught your eye? Uh Oh, a lot of things. Um, yeah, a lot of people are doing a lot of good work, but it always always comes back to, you know, what's the evidence? So what's your game? What is the game? What, what do you need the players to do to play that game well? So there's, there are some key aspects. And then secondly, you know, knowing the character of the players and getting that balance of the, the character right. Um, so it always comes back to that, and there are different ways of getting that that information now. So um, yeah, a couple of good small ideas to add to the pot, mate. What's interesting, you talk about character because I hear you um, talking a lot about psychology and how that's playing a bigger and bigger role in um, in rugby coaching. I heard a great interview with Corinne Reed, who I know you brought into your um, your program very successfully. Could you talk a little bit about how you're using psychology and how it's affecting your role as a coach? Uh, well, I don't think it's it's actually changed at all. I think it's just become more more um, spoken about. I think, yeah, you think about all the great coaches in the past. They've always understood their teams. They've always understood their players. Uh, maybe the the manner you did it was less sophisticated than it is now because you could be a bit more upfront, a bit more in your face. Um, now it's definitely more complex uh, because the the, the learning um, approaches of each of the generations is changing quickly, uh, more so than before. So the ability to be able to capture a group where you've got guys from the age of 32 to 18 um, who have got completely different ideas of how they want to learn and how they do learn and 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 try to get the same message through has become much more challenging um, and a lot you have to put a lot more work into that area than you used to you know you used to be able to get up get a whiteboard write the three points on the right boys boys are right right let's get into it and and generally you'd capture enough players to get it right and now you've got to be able to present that information in, in three or four different ways consult the players on it discuss it with the players make sure they've had an input 
um, which is it's you know has, has probably made coaching a lot more interesting because it's less about just the energy and and the and the drive of the coach and more about how you can create a, a more cohesive environment. Um, yeah, so psychology is massive, mate. Um, but the other thing that also strikes me is that, and all the great coaches have said it, um, you know, people like Rick Charlesworth, Sir Alex Ferguson, it's how you establish relationships with players. Like, they've got to remember conversations you've had. If 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 they don't remember the conversations, the conversations were meaning, meaningless. Like, I did a, a, a podcast with Joe Roth, um on Thursday, great player, laziest bloke I ever coached, but brilliant player, and lo- I loved him. Um, but he, you know, I, I like my teams to train hard, and he was so, sort of the opposite of that. Um, but he recalled a conversation this, like this, is now thirty years ago, and it shows you the the power of emotion. He said we were we were training for a test match on Saturday, and on Wednesday, I went up to him. I said, "Oh, mate." We're going to give you tomorrow off because we want you to be at your best for the for the Saturday. You look a bit, a little bit tired. And he said he walked away from that. And he immediately felt, "Geez, I've got to play well on Saturday because I owe this bloke." And you know, it just shows you thirty a conversation, small conversation, thirty years ago. A player remembers that because you're showing care. Now, other times it might be digging a bit deeper, um, but if you, if you can if you can get that emotional. Uh, knit with a player, then you got a you got a chance of having a positive effect. And, and yeah, you know, I've never you spoke about Kareem Reed. I've never met someone who is so able to pick up the threads of a room so quickly. Incredible, mate. I felt embarrassed being in the same room as her. I really did, mate. She is scary. How good she is. What did you take away then from your time with Kareem? What stayed with you? Uh just how much you have to keep working on, on your observation skills of picking up, picking up what's not being said, uh, picking up where the conflicts are, picking up where the potential conflicts are. And sometimes you dig a screwdriver into where there's a potential conflict because every team, you know, is full of conflicts because you've got, it doesn't matter whether you're playing cricket or, or baseball or netball, you've got a, a group of people or, or selling beer you've got a group of people who all have different wants and needs and you're trying to get them to do the same thing. So at any one stage, there's some sort of conflict going on and your ability to to find that conflict or help the players resolve that conflict and move to a, a more cohesive state is a, is a, is a special art and, and you've just got to keep working on it. Even when you think your team's going well, you've got to be even harder in looking for those conflicts. You've talked a lot about conflict, especially in relation to younger players, just not not having the skills to communicate and resolve conflict as people, you know, five, ten years older than them. Is there any top tips you've got on how to mine for it? How to, you know, you said push the screwdriver in? Uh, Look, I don't have any tips. I don't have any solutions. I've got a few ideas. Um, Look. I think they do have the ability, but they're just not encouraged to use it anymore. You know, if if my daughter's 27, so I wanted her to be brought up like like me. You know, I wanted her to be tough and just get on with it. And I worked out she wasn't. Um, now, when she has children, her kids are going to have an even more 
praiseful environment, which is the way kids are being brought up. It's not wrong or right. Um, so their ability to accept that, that sometimes things aren't going to be right is the difficult part. And I think it's it's the ability to be able to teach them that it doesn't always have to be fun and you don't always have to be happy. And at times there are difficult situations, but there's a fun too. And the fun too is sticking at something, doing it well, and then achieving. And I think it's almost, you've always got to be conscious of the fact there's a, a fun there that you've got to let them have. Um, you know, how many times do you hear people say, are you happy now at the end of a conversation? Well, most of the time in rugby, you're never happy because you because the other team's trying to belt you and you're trying to belt them. That's not, you know, unless you're uh, something that, that maybe should be in a horror movie, it's, it's not a way of having happiness. But out of playing rugby well, you can have such great fun. You know, and, and it's teaching players about how do you find that fun too? How do you understand fun too? is something that you've got to stick at. It's going to, at times going to be uncomfortable at times. There's going to be bits and pieces where you don't like, and uh, you just keep on trying to find ways to get it through. Um, I think part of that is giving them more ownership of the problem than, than probably traditionally we've done. Like we'll, we'll definitely, and this is one thing we picked up for Corinne, rather than trying to solve a player's problem, we'll give the player almost the problem entirely. And, and encourage them to work out the problem. Now, we'll give them advice and guidance, but the problem is their problem, not our problem. So if a, say a, a player's got a problem with his consistency of his, of his performance, you know, traditionally a coach would be trying to find ways to help him be more consistent. Now, we certainly take the approach, well, you're inconsistent. How are you going to solve it? Now, if you need some help, we can help you, but that's your problem because you're going to make, ultimately, you're going to make the choice, not us. We're not going to make the choice for you. You're going to make the choice. So I hope that makes a bit of sense. Makes a lot of sense. It's, uh, if it makes any sense to you, I think it's very similar in the corporate world. We have a full-time yeah. psychologist on staff as well. Um, and that person helps you understand the individuals that you've got working for you and, and work through the best way to engage with them too. Yeah, yeah. Eddie, can I take you back a little bit to Japan? Um, and when I was reading about the time when you went there, I was fascinated to see how when you took took over, you went back to the samurai culture and you read about it and you, you engaged with it and you came up with the values of trust, hard work and discipline as being touchstones for the team. And, and that seemed to work because it was such a great period in Japanese rugby. So f- from that context, um, if someone was out there and they were setting up a new team culture, what are the things that you'd tell them to do first? Uh, that's a great question. Um, well, I've got some, again, I've got some ideas. Uh, I think firstly, you've always got to look at the history of the organization. Uh, so when I go to a country, I look at the history of the country, what's been important for the country to be successful. Are there some underlying values or qualities that are consistent in the behavior of the people and that are important to people. Like, you know, you'll work with a Japanese company and, and one of the things Japanese companies are, are, are massive on is respect. Yeah. You've got to be respectful 
to the people you work with, respectful to your competitors. And, and you know, another part of that, apart from my wife, is Japanese. They're the most punctual people in the world. So I'll just give you one example with the Japan team. So we had 29 Japanese players and six New Zealand players. So we'd have a meeting at, at five o'clock. At, at quarter to five, almost by, by clockwork, the Japanese players would be in there with their notebooks ready to go. Yeah, we're, we're ready for the meeting. The New Zealand players had come in any time from five minutes to one minute to 30 seconds before the meeting um, because that's how they're educated. You know, it's five o'clock, we'll be there at five. Um, and so you immediately had a discord between the team. Um, so to get cohesion in, in, in punctuality, to, to tell that to the New Zealand players doesn't strike a chord. To tell that to the Japanese players, come here at five, doesn't strike a chord. So immediately punctuality was something where we could drive cohesion. So I gave the New Zealand players a, a schedule that had had the had the meeting 15 minutes earlier all the time, and then the players sat together because they were in in at the same time, and immediately had more cohesion. So it's it's mining for things that are really important. Um, you know, another thing just in Japan, I always find people who are going to be successful in Japan, foreigners, tend to want to use chopsticks because they understand how important a meal is in Japan. And if you make the make the the choice to try to learn to eat with chopsticks, you immediately become more part of their their culture. So you're you're looking for things where you can you can really drive it home, and that are absolutely non-negotiable. And then then you're looking for things that need to change because tradition can be powerful and positive, and it also can be can be negative. And you want to change those negative things, like in Japan. They train, they were traditionally trained for four or five hours a day. No big deal. For, like, how can you train four or five hours for rugby? I couldn't even think of what to do. Um, so how could we change that? So we, I said to the players, we're going to train at a certain percentage. As soon as you drop down that certain percentage, we'll finish. Because you, training's about giving 100%. I remember one of the first sessions I did, I'll give Suntory a plug since you were the Sahi. I did with Suntory. Uh, I said, for the next 10 minutes, we've got to be 100%. And after one minute, a player stopped, stopped being 100%. And I finished the session. Sent him home, said to him, go and sell beer. Don't come to training anymore. Made it, over-exaggerated the problem. And immediately, I got a behavior change in the group that we train for shorter periods, but at the intensity we needed to train. So it was no longer three-hour sessions, shorter sessions, but we trained with a far greater application, which then resulted in them playing better. I want to talk about tradition then, if I can, because you, you, it's a great story to illustrate how you've picked up on you know cultural cues to, to get closer to your team. But when you got into England, you talked about the team having a fear of failure within the players. And I'm really interested to know how you got them to move beyond that and embrace, you know, a different mindset. Uh, well, again, uh, I was an Aussie looking in on the English side who I I'd played some club rugby and, and coached a little bit. So I had a, an understanding of how the, the rugby landscape worked in England. And, you know, the, the media is powerful in England. 
the the papers are, are absolutely ferocious. You know, so you're either the best thing that's ever been made, or you you're hopeless, and there's nothing in between. So the the players openly talked about, and I, and I heard it from more from football players who even found it even more when they went to the England side. All they wanted to do was not be the scapegoat. So they're always dealing with the fact they didn't want to be the one that made the mistake. And then I got there, spoke to a few of the players who were, who were openly honest, and they reinforced that when they came to England, they wanted to be safety first. They didn't want to fail. It was all about just being nice and safe. Uh, how did I overcome? Well, I don't think I have, but we're getting there um, because those sort of deep-seated problems you don't solve quickly. Yeah, you, you, you're manipulating, you're changing, you're moving in the right direction, but you can always go back. Um, but what we've concentrated on is being England. Um, what are we good at? What are we going to do um, as a team as England? And also just really driving the message about the only noise that's important is the noise within the room. That noise outside the room, as, as much as it might influence people you've got to avoid that noise um, you know and I've heard Belichick the great American football coach speak about that consistently and it's so true I, I saw a great uh, press conference with that Nick Saban have you heard of him the I think he coaches one of the university teams uh, Michigan he was or he was at Michigan and he said all the time I'm just trying to get the poison out of their heads you guys are trying to put the poison in their in their heads I'm trying to take it out, and it's but it's true, you know, because the media want either great success or great failure. Where most of the time, sporting teams, the reality is, the difference between winning and losing is about three percent, and you're always around that line, and 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 your job as a coach is to get them above the line as much as you can, you know, and and most coaches, if you get above sixty percent of the time, you're doing really well. You're 70% you're doing extraordinarily well. 80% you're flying. Um, and then if you're uh, the PSG coach, who was, no, the, the, who was it, won the Champions League, Bayern Munich, he's winning at 91%. Like he's, he's on top of the world. But you know, as soon as you get on top, there's somewhere to. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. We had a chat a couple of weeks ago with Lisa Alexander, who finished her career with an 81% winning record. Yeah. And yet, um, you know, she was finished by Netball Australia. 
um, even with that impressive winning record. So it's a it's a great reminder, as you've said, you're only ever five or six games away from uh, getting the sack. Um, I'd like to talk about that actually, Eddie, because you, you've had times in your career where you've actually um, you know been sacked. You've had a great ups and downs, and you've travelled the world. And I was really interested actually in '98 when you were with the Brumbies because you know looking at at your history, you'd been with Randwick, you had some success. You'd gone up to Japan, it had gone well, and you came back to the Brumbies, which I imagine was, you know, was a big step up, and it didn't go so well, you know, in that first season. Um, and then it got better in the subsequent years. But I'm, I'm imagining at the end of that first season, you must have had some self-doubt, and I'm really interested to understand how you dealt with it and whether you've got any advice for others on dealing with self-doubt. Uh, uh, yeah, I do remember it really well. I can remember a game in uh, Cape Town. We played against the Stormers and we got beaten 28-3, something like that. And we tried hard but got absolutely belted. It was like men against boys. And I remember going back to my room and just lying on the bed and thinking, what have I got myself into here? And I, I went that night, drove out went and sat on the beach, which is probably not a good idea in Cape Town by yourself. <laughs> so I'm lucky I'm still here. Um, and just thought about, right, well, I've got to come up with a plan. We've got to do things differently. And and that was the, I can still remember that night was the catalyst of, of what we did with the Brumbies. So I thought, right, where can't we compete? Where can we compete? And we couldn't, and, and we couldn't compete physically, but we could com- compete in smart. So we, then we, started to develop this smart game. So the big thing here, I reckon, is, is, is doing really good reflection. Be as honest as you can where you are, what you're good at and what you're not good at. And then you've got to get a group of people around you to help drive it. So then that winter, I can remember after we finished Super Rugby, that, that time was a summer sport, spending that winter in cafes in, in Canberra uh, with a number of the players, and particularly Rod Kafer, who was a, a, one of the significant architects of how we restructured our game. We just countless pages and pages of, of thoughts about how we were going to resurrect the Brumbies. And so we stuck at it. And I remember the next season, we lost the first three games. You know, so now, like the roof's starting to fall in a bit heavier, the rain's coming through. You know, you're looking for a dry spot and there's not too many. But you've just got to, you've got to, because we knew we were on the right spot because what had happened at the end of that Super Rugby season, there was a thing called the Rico Cup, which was basically New South Wales, Queensland and the Brumbies playing in the competition without the Wallabies. I remember we played against New South Wales and we went out there and, and started playing our new, like, smart strategic rugby. And we led 14-0 after 10 minutes. And that was beautiful rugby blew them off the park but we weren't good enough at that stage to sustain them so we ended up getting beaten by a big score but in, there was a few guys in the dressing room knew we were on the right track so you, you've got to keep believing and to do that you've got to have a good group of people around you you've got to keep reflecting and you've got to keep adapting your plan and of course you did go on to win in 2001 yeah, yeah. first team outside of New Zealand to, to win um, I'd like to talk about on-field leadership um, uh, Eddie, because you you made a very unpopular decision uh, back when you chose Dylan Harley, but you talked about um, you've always talked about the importance of on field leadership, and I'm really interested to hear what advice you have for other coaches on choosing the right captain. 
Yeah, well, uh, I remember when when we picked Dylan, I had a great CEO, Ian Ritchie. Um, he was very supportive. He got literally stacks of letters from private schools saying they're going to stop playing rugby um, because Dylan was this thug who played rugby. But in fact, all of all of his misdemeanors had come with playing for his club, and none had been with England. Um, but how, how do you pick your leader? Um, as a coach, you've got to know who you are. So what do you need to complement you? Um, because the two of you together have got to be a complementary team. And so if you're a coach that's, that's strong and likes to talk a lot and likes to dominate, then you don't need a captain who's going to be the same. You need someone who's quieter, does it behind the scenes, if you're a social coach, you don't need a, a captain again who's a social guy. So you need to find a complementary match and you need the captain. The most important thing is that he'll influence the team in a good way. It doesn't have to be perfect. It's very rare that you find a captain that's great on the field and off the field. They're generally great at one and then you've got to surround him with the, the necessary resources to complement the areas he's not strong at. Um, and, and, and don't be afraid to get it wrong. That's the other thing. Um, but pick someone who, who compliments you, um, who's got an ability to influence the team in the right direction. And for us at that stage for England, it was about we needed a, a, a real sort of guy that could get around the dressing room and pull people together. Um, so Dylan was like that. He was a bit of a knockabout, you know, out of Rotorua, um, left home when he was 16, 17, used to be in the academy at Worcester, used to steal food from the from the kitchen to, to feed himself. Like he was that sort of bloke, you know, resourceful. Um, and it meant a lot to him to play for England. Um, so he wanted to bring people together and he wanted to be successful so he could influence people. But don't be afraid to be wrong, but have a clear thought about yourself as a coach and what you need as a captain to complement it. Eddie, you talk about being, you know, there's this tension in coaching, which is building relationships with players that's close enough to know what they want, to, to engage with them, as you talked about earlier. But you've also got to be able to stand back and be dispassionate and make decisions in, in the, for the greater good of the team. How do you find that line? And do you have any advice or any learnings around finding that line and making sure you don't overstep? I think one of the greatest pieces of advice I ever got, and I think it was, it might have been from Wayne Bennett, the great rugby league coach. Uh, he's still coaching now. He said, "Just remember, they're never your friends, the players." And it's and it's so true. You've always got to have that that respectful relationship with them. That there's a, there's almost an uh, an undrawn line between you and the players where you're close enough to know what they need, but you're not close enough for the emotion of of the relationship to affect your judgment. And, and you can, and that, that line can move because sometimes you need to be closer to them and sometimes you need to be further away and your ability to judge almost whether you need to go in the sauna or whether you need to go in the ice, ice bath, check the temperature of the team and know what they need, but it's a movable feast, but you've always got to have that little bit where, where, maybe they're, they, they're not quite sure what you're thinking. Like it's good to have, you know, people say you've got to have clarity. Well, you do, 
but you also need that little bit where they're not quite sure what what what's there and that's i reckon you know it's that it's that beautiful relationship between uh having some conflict and having cohesion that it's just like you know do i put a bit more hydrochloric acid in or do i need, need a bit bit of sodium in there it's it's knowing what to do and and again i'd say for any coach out there don't be afraid to get that wrong you've got to make mistakes the only way you learn in coaching is to make mistakes and the only way you never know how good a coach you are is when you lose three games in a row and that's when you find out about yourself you haven't coached until you've done that and then 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 you know what you're about you said you said in one interview recently that being a coach is about adjusting players with limitations can you share some examples of where you've successfully taken a player adjusted their limitations and moved them forward uh, well I think again I reckon the big change in coaching now is that probably when I first came into coaching I always wanted to fix players weak areas I always wanted to improve their weak areas. And now I would almost entirely focus on their strengths of how can I make that strength better. Um, and it's it's the big thing, I reckon, in terms of coaching for, for any player, because all the players you coach, they generally want to be better. And if they don't want to be better, you don't want them. Um, is, is getting a picture in their head of, of, of where what they can be and then helping them find the way to get there. Um, so I remember Steve Larkin, who's probably one of the most gifted rugby players the world's seen. He had this, uh, it was bloody annoying, you know, because he was a perfect player, but he turned the ball over at least twice a game. And I couldn't work out why. So then I, I really sat down and, and watched his games clearly. And it was every time he ran right to left, he tried to offload with his left arm, but he'd always do it one-handed, whereas when he'd run to the right, he'd always offload with two hands. So he hadn't recognised that as a player, but the good players, all I had to do was show him that right-to-left offload and that left-to-right offload, got a picture in his head of what was wrong, and, and that that ceased to be a, a problem. Yeah, so you always got to find a way to show the players a problem, and and most of the time they'll work out the solution that's um, themselves but again the use of emotion there I think is really important because you've got to tinge sometimes you've got to tinge that with emotion like you know George Smith always tells a story about when he was a young guy coming through you know he liked to be a George Smith and as he you know he got 19, 20, 21 he's played for Australia he's won super with the Brumby so he's a bit of a hit around town you know so people wanted to take him for beers he had this you know long hair uh, and he was a bit of a jack around the town and uh, he was starting to put on a little bit of weight. You know, his T-shirts got bigger. He was, he was pulling out his T-shirt more to hide his weight. And I got him in one day and I just said to him, I said, mate, you've got a decision to make here. You either stop drinking or you train harder. Uh, but this time I'm going to make the decision for you because you're not going to stop drinking. And then he trained hard. And then you hear these stories, even at 38 for Wass, you know, they'd have a night out and he'd be the first in the gym the next day and train hard. And because whilst you gave him the solution then, it was a, it was a conversation he'll remember the rest of his life. 
So you, you change the way he thinks about things and it has a lasting effect on me. I can see in the background there, you've got Evolve or Die written on the, the plan. I don't want to give away any, any secrets, but is that a theme that you're taking at the minute? Uh, at the moment, yeah, yeah. No, because uh, what's happened, uh, uh, I think, yeah, you know, sport's going to change considerably over this next period of time. And I think there's a great opportunity because everyone's starting at ground zero again. It's almost like the whole world's been taken back to, to the base and, and teams are literally, and players are literally starting again. So there's this great opportunity this moment to really evolve what you're doing as a team in terms of your training, in terms of the game, in terms of the way you operate. And that relates to coaches too. Yeah, you've got to you've got to keep thinking about right. How can I evolve myself as a coach? How can I keep getting better as a coach? And and unless you do that, you are going to die. And you've, you, perseverance, resilience—I don't know whatever you want to call it—it's such a part of your own story and the way that you've kept going despite setbacks. You know, and you said that you wrote your book to help young rugby coaches realize they don't have to be perfect. You know, they don't have to be to be successful they don't need to be striving for perfection um so what advice do you have for other coaches on persevering oh, well there's a great book mate uh courage to be disliked it's written by a japanese guy um it's that psychology theorist adler i think it is and it's all about the fact that never use well, one of the one of the things that comes out of the book is never use your, your background or what's happened in your life as an excuse for what you do in the future. And I think for me, that's it. Like, I, you know, I came out of Matraville High, eastern suburbs of, of uh, Sydney. We had 30% Aboriginal kids. Out of my year, we had two kids go to university. One was another boy and, and myself. You know, it wasn't... It wasn't academically driven, uh, and I'm coaching England now. Like it's almost like, uh, how can you do that from the eastern suburbs of Sydney? You know, from a working class, because if if you have a desire to be good at something and you apply yourself to it, then you're going to get success. Now, success can look in a number of ways. You know, I could still be a coach at Randwick and be coaching their third grade and be developing players, and that's successful. You know, I've been lucky enough to coach at the international level, had wins, had losses, um, but, but being able to keep, keep building on a career, and I think you can do that at any level, and never let your, your background or, or what's happened to you to be an excuse for not going forward. Um, it's funny you talk about your background, because I believe at high school you went with the Eller brothers. So you yeah, must. So we were, yeah, we won everything, mate. It was a joke, you know. We played rugby as though as though the game was being reinvented. Um, I've never seen three guys with almost, you know, they used to talk about this telepathic um, connection that they throw the ball and the other one would turn up. And they was the three of them were so different personality wise. You know, Mark was quite driven. Um, and you've seen, you know, Mark was the most successful players, basically dropped out of public life. Glenn was more, was talent, probably more talented than Mark, but a larrikin, you know, loved, loved life, um, you know, and he's, he's constantly in, in some sort of trouble or, or something, but done, had done some great uh, coaching jobs. And then Gary, who's 
is a much more serious, the younger one, the serious one. Yeah, it's, he wasn't fed as much as the other two. He's had to fight his way, become a great advocate for Aboriginal uh, quality, uh, works for the local council. I think he's on the World Cup committee for the 2027 World Cup and he's, yeah, he's a man of great stature. But they were just, you know, playing with those guys. We won every cricket game, every rugby game. So he got used to winning, which was, so you're in, you know, a fairly disadvantaged type area. But we had this, we had this almost luck to be, to think winning was normal. Um, and it's definitely helped me in terms of my coaching um, because I don't accept anything less than, than winning. And what I mean by winning is, is that you're doing, everything you can to be at your best you know sometimes the result goes your way sometimes it doesn't but if you're doing everything you can if you're doing good practice all the time then then you know you're going to be successful if i could um take you back to that young school teacher who's coaching ranwick late 20 early 30s i think you were back then what advice if you had that person in the room with you now what advice would you give them uh, be patient, uh, be humble, um, and keep working to your strengths. I think being humble is the hardest thing when you win. Um, and I think understanding it's not only for your team, but for yourself that every time you've won that weakness immediately comes in the environment. And, and you, the strength is not to accept that you're going to have that weakness and, and to keep working hard to be better. And perhaps just one last question, Eddie. Um, and it's the legacy question. And I know it's a difficult one, but what is the legacy you want to leave as a coach? Uh, well, I don't want to leave anything. You know, I'm not, I don't think that's my role. Um, but what I'd like to think is that there uh, would be kids in any part of a rugby environment that if they're not good enough as a player to play for the country, they think they, they, they can aspire to be good enough to coach their country. And that was my drive. You know, I wanted to play for the country. I wanted to be in chapel in cricket and I wanted to be uh, the starting hooker for the Wallabies. So I wasn't, I wasn't good enough to do either of those. Um, so I ended up coach. I ended up that drove me to coach because I thought I could do something to to help the game, um, and that's what I, I'd like to think. There, there'd be kids out there to think, well, you can do this. Like let's let's be as good a player as we can be. If I can't be as good as I want to be in terms of of, of making teams, then then look to add to the game through coaching. Eddie Jones, it's been a privilege to talk to you today. Thank you so much for carving out a bit of your time. We appreciate it. And best of luck for the season ahead. Yeah, no, thanks very much. Good to chat to you, mate. Cheers. The Great Coaches Podcast. Hi, it's Jim. Well, what a masterclass that truly was. Spending time with Eddie Jones was really special. There were so many things to take out of that discussion that I know I can apply them in my day-to-day straight away. If you have now listened to a few of our Great Coach discussions, you will have noticed the recurring theme of resilience coming through quite strongly, and with Eddie, this was no different. His breakdown of the development of the Brumby Smart Game and how the catalyst of that was him facing his own self-doubt during that moment on a beach in Cape Town way back in 1998. 
Many under those conditions may have walked away, but Eddie's drive to keep believing, to keep reflecting, and to keep adapting the plan for me reflects the type of leader he is and just how raw that moment was. Eddie references the book, The Courage to be Disliked by Chiro Kishimi and Fumitaka Koga. It is a book of deep wisdom using storytelling to guide you through the concepts of self-forgiveness, self-care and mind decluttering. Quite a liberating way of thinking to help you change any limitations that you may be placing on yourself. We'll put the details of this book and Eddie's own autobiography in the show notes for you. Coming up next on the Great Coaches podcast, Paul speaks with Mercedes Taft Cooper. Mercedes is a registered psychologist, a sports and exercise scientist, and a successful boxer and coach. The outcome of her many years of academic and dedicated sports learning experiences are now being paid forward through her Counterpunch program that provides young people, especially young boys, with an effective, fun-filled, evidence-based program that is really influencing and changing young lives. It's a discussion that I know will move you. My mission, if you like, is to get as many teenagers as possible through the program, you know, throughout the world. And I think the best network for me to do that and the best, I guess, you know, it's 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 funny how you can't see what's obvious until it slaps you in the face, but combat coaches are who am I know best because I am one and have been for 40 years now. So potentially they were the people I should be working with right from the start. And just before we go, if you have any feedback about any of our Great Coach episodes or you know a great coach who has a unique story to share, then we'd love to hear from you. Please contact us using the details in the show notes. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.